In the recent weeks, a clear division has now arisen amongst the people of the country. But beyond America, there's a global conversation that's taking place. It's all emerged from this whole pandemic. On one side, you have those who have lived through the reality of this disease, the healthcare workers, the nurses, the doctors, and all the emergency responders. But in this group, you also find the families who have themselves been hit with the virus, loved ones who, who've contracted the disease, those who have had to say goodbye to those loved ones or who have been separated because of the real fear that comes from spreading to others this disease who may be in the group of higher-risk candidates. There's an understanding within this fear that this is to be taken seriously and that to value life is more than one's career, one's home, and one's possessions. And for them, the restrictions and the stay-at-home orders are nothing to question or play around with. In essence, there's a real ethical argument to be made that if you aren't at home and you're defying the orders given by state and local governments, then you are, in fact, part of the problem. And, you know, from their perspective, it makes perfect sense, especially if you've had the disease yourself. If you're on the front lines fighting the disease or or, or, or you've experienced the real pain of seeing friends and loved ones contract it and die. There are no lines drawn or borders here because the virus doesn't discriminate. Now, on the other side, we find the American worker. Some say the pandemic isn't as bad as the media has presented it to be. And those who do acknowledge the pandemic as an obvious danger to take seriously, there's also the question of the economic effects that have come as a result of the choice to effectively close the economy down. Without a job, how does one provide for his or her family? And what about small businesses who have had to close their doors, furlough, or let go of their employees? They're workers. The domino effect can't be easily ignored. There have been serious questions asked about the mentally or emotionally compromised who may find themselves living in isolation already, right? They've lived in isolation for a while, and now they're forced into a regulated isolation and, that, and these particular individuals become even more vulnerable to cases of anxiety, to depression, and being more depressed, and more likely to contemplate and commit suicide. The poor are becoming even poorer. The jobless numbers are growing by, by the numbers, by huge numbers. And market futures are down and with a very grim outlook for, for the days ahead. They say tomorrow is never guaranteed, and now that's true even more so. More could die 
than those stricken by the disease if forced to stay home and not allowed to work. So, which side has the winning argument? Who has the better moral argument? What side do we take? These questions can't be ignored, and you can't dismiss them. It's easy for any one of us to read all the dif- all the different arguments being made and, and think through the virtues of each side and make a decision if we aren't directly affected by either reality. Because some of us really are in the middle of this. Think of it. It's just like a good debate on our rights or on political parties or policies. We take sides, but we also live our lives in the midst of that. But if you're listening and have been one of those directly affected by the virus, you've lost loved ones because of it, or have even contracted the disease yourself, even though you're a survivor, but your symptoms were so severe that you you questioned your own survival? Or let's say you're a worker who has lost his or her job, you're a business owner, and not sure if you'll survive this crisis and you've had to let go of workers and are looking for a green light to go back to work in order to hopefully save your future. This isn't some academic formula to solve. It isn't some abstract idea to write books about and debate among the intellectual or ideological pundits we're constantly watching on TV. This is as real as it gets. And in the middle, you find those who perhaps still have jobs, but are working from home, so they're still getting a paycheck, and you have those who haven't contracted the disease or don't know anyone close to them who has contracted the disease and perhaps even died. We don't need experts to come and patronize us with all of their so-called expertise on the subject. We need to be able to have the choices to exercise our liberty as each of us sees fit in our own lives, right? Well, but when does the individual ever trump the collective? And does the collective ever trump the individual? Because both questions are just as relevant as each person who has lost his or her job or has lost loved ones in this pandemic. Each nurse or doctor who are also fighting against the virus. The needs of the one or the many. Is that how we make the moral choice? Do the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one? Or do the needs of the one outweigh the needs of the many? You know, for some, it's a simple game of numbers, of graphs and models. But to others, it's about our principles that are immovable and that define our worth as human beings and give each of us meaning. And there are times we look to our favorite personalities, to our pastors, our teachers, um, mentors, to confirm our own bias to make us feel that our side is right. And here's the thing, 
and this may shock you, this this may even make you more upset, but I'm going to say it. Both sides are right and both sides are wrong. And some would say, well, wait a minute, that's a cop out. Is it really, though? Because here's the question I would offer both sides. Is what is motivating your current course fear? Is it despair? Is it anger towards the opposing side? My right to work and support my family is being trampled. The right to live is being trampled by those protesting because of the risk they are taking and not abiding by the stay-at-home orders. Fear of the unknown or of what we do not completely understand always leads to one place. Tyranny. It also leads us to indifference. And history is our evidence of this very thing. Because it's true. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. This isn't a problem of just one side. It's a problem inherent to the world. It's inherent to the whole human race. It isn't to say that there is that there isn't in fact a truth that roots us all and should inform our choices. In fact, the very principles of life and existence constitute a moral absolute that when one group oppresses another for whatever the reason be, it violates the self-evident truth of our equality and worth. And while we must respect the right of the individual because of his or her distinctiveness there does remain a responsibility that one has to have for his fellow man if individuality becomes selfish and inward looking what happens to the society around us to which we as individuals belong but the question must also be posed, can the individual be dictated to by the collective against his or her own will in the name of some greater so-called good? Can ethics or morality be legislated? And again, history holds the evidence of the outcome of how this repeated attempt at creating and managing society has always backfired and caused more harm than good. So what does history tell us? Just a few weeks ago in episode 12, we looked at the period in history in which Rome dominated the world. It was not only a geopolitical power, but it was also a religio-political power. Imperial Rome had done enough in terms of its conquests and oppression of other nations up to its eventual fall, and this is undisputed. What becomes fascinating is that Rome 
after unleashing a fierce persecution of the recently formed Christian church during, during its years of infancy was spread out over about 200 years. Once the empire of Rome is crushed and severed, Rome isn't eradicated, it's simply broken. And it really happens in stages, not all in one shot. And one of the most significant shifts in power takes place under the emperor Constantine, who ends the persecution of Christians in the year 313 AD. And he ends it in his Edict of Milan, in which Christianity becomes an accepted part of the empire. And he himself converts to Christianity and later makes the Christian religion the official religion of Rome about 10 years after this famous edict. This is incredibly ironic since Rome had once been one of the fiercest exterminators of Christians, beginning with the very crucifixion of the founder himself, Jesus, in AD 31. Now, in the year 330 AD, Constantine divides the empire into two parts, the eastern part of the empire and the western part, with Rome in the west and the great city of Constantinople in the east. Now, it's argued that this divide only contributed to Rome's eventual fall. And what's important to keep in mind is that when historians speak of the fall of Rome, it's really in reference to the western part of the empire, Rome itself, in 476 A.D., and by this time, Christianity was the official religion of the empire. So while the city of Rome is sacked and taken over by the Germanic tribes, Constantinople, the eastern part of the empire, still stands in that time. Now, throughout all of this warfare and conflict, there had been church leadership. What, what was the head of... Um, what was considered the head bishop of the church, or in our time, what is referred to as the Pope, the pontiff, or the official head of the church. Now, here's where Justinian I, okay, the emperor of the East, comes into play. Besides his deep-seated Christian faith, he also seeks to retake the western half of the empire and to unite the whole of the empire under, under one banner. And he does that very thing when he's able to retake Rome in the year 538 A.D. Now, the historical record clearly shows that Justinian declared himself to be, quote, a theologian and no longer a soldier. And this is another significant shift in power. It's a great shift. Because he set out to Christianize the whole of the empire. In other words, the line between church and state is not just blurred, but really made into one. Justinian upheld the supremacy of the Pope and sought to give full ecclesiastical and social political power over to the office of the pontiff. Under Justinian, you have church building projects that began to take place as well as persecution of those who opposed the church whether you said you were a Christian or not. And this became known as the Code of Justinian, which served as a precedent to the succeeding popes during the Middle Ages. 
This gave the office of the Pope a supreme power equal to that of the past Caesars of Imperial Rome. So what was once pagan Imperial Rome becomes Christian Imperial Rome. It's sort of a contradiction in terms if you really think about it. And eventually, what is true of absolute power on earth throughout the historical record is true once again. Through that which was supposed to represent the freedom of the captives, but becomes one of the most oppressive powers for 1,260 years. So, basically from the year 538 A.D., to the capture of the Pope by Napoleon in 1798. That's 1,260 years. The laws of the church became the law of the land, and eventually the law of the known world, since Europe would be shaped by the Roman Catholic power throughout the Middle Ages. Kings are given their legitimacy by the Roman office of the Pope as our marriages and those who are branded as heretics, which means anyone that would dare challenge the power of the church, they become victims of its oppressive power with their very lives. Even if there was a legitimate challenge to the power of the church by those who began to actually read the Bible in their own native languages, to ask the very questions that a lot of skeptics ask today, they were persecuted many imprisoned, and ultimately between 50 to 70 million Christians were killed as a result. I wonder, is this the legacy that Jesus sought to leave for those who followed him? A challenge to free thought and to seek for truth for oneself in order to preserve powers that had become the very embodiment of tyranny? Do not we, in our time, stand against any such power, whether religious or political, that would seek to execute any law that would rob, of, uh, uh, rob us of our most basic human rights? In fact, it is the very reason why the Puritans left Europe. They, they left to escape religious persecution. This religious persecution that was actualized by the Roman Catholic Church. America is the natural result of this exodus. And all of us, we belong to the legacy of liberty from tyranny. And that no power has the authority, regardless of office or class, to force its own will upon any individual within the greater society, even in the name of the, quote, greater good, unquote. Why go back to history then? Because history is supposed to be the anchor that grounds us and informs us of the best of times as well as the worst of times. The Roman Catholic power of the Middle Ages did just that. And it did it all in the name of the so-called greater good doesn't work because absolute power corrupts absolutely. Besides the loyalty to the church, among the ecclesiastical laws which were to be observed under severe penalties, there's one line in particular that I find extremely interesting 
under the emperorship of Constantine. So go with me here. On March 7 of the year 321 AD, just eight years after Constantine had accepted Christianity as part of the empire, he issues a decree making Sunday a day of rest from labor, which states, quote, all judges and city people and the craftsmen shall rest upon the venerable day of the sun, unquote. In effect, he makes Sunday a Sabbath legislated under law that all must adhere to. Now, this was not, of course, a universal law in nature, so to speak. It was more of a civil law. But it did set up a new precedent that church law can be legislated at the civil level. As a Christian, one might not find this to be problematic, However, when one sees the result of the church dictating in political and state affairs, there is no question of the obvious implications to free thought and the exercise of free will. Not to mention that from the perspective of a skeptic, as we've looked in the past in in other episodes like Bill Maher, for instance, who poses a very logical question. And here's his question, quote, are you ever bothered by many things that are that are in Christianity that are not in the Bible, like original sin, immaculate conception, popes? Are you worried that these things came not from the founders, the people who wrote the Bible, but from men, from human beings, unquote? Isn't questioning with boldness the honest way to find truth? And this question is asked in that very tradition. Now, Bill would have certainly, he would have been among the many imprisoned or killed for questioning with boldness during this time in history, the Middle Ages. He doesn't mention it in his question, but I would, I would add to this question in this context that we're talking about. How did Constantine and the church establish a Sunday rest law? Well, up to that time, much of the tradition in the church followed that the Sabbath was kept on Sunday because Jesus resurrected on Sunday. Although this isn't true of the very first Christians to come out of Judaism and even with new converts during the first uh, century. However, when one looks at the original document, as Bill suggests we do, there's no mention at all of the first day of the week being the Sabbath. It isn't there. What we do find when we go to the original document is that the original law found in the Ten Commandments, namely the Fourth Commandment, is that the Sabbath is the seventh day, as found in Exodus chapter 20. And further, and, and, and Exodus chapter 20 further establishes the fact that the fourth commandment mentions the reason for the Sabbath being on the seventh day is creation itself, since God hallowed the seventh day himself after the six days of creation were completed. That's what is found in the original document. So, do we follow ecclesiastical laws unquestionably or do we ask wait a minute what is truth what does the original document say does tradition dictate or does principle 
dictate. It is this very act of free will and questioning that resulted in 50 million plus to lose their lives. Because the church, after all, was the legitimizing power that was to dictate even to the consciences of all men. Is that logical? Is it ethical? And is it in line with the self-evident truth of human liberty? It is self-evident, meaning it is unquestionable regardless of our own sensibilities. The point of history isn't just that it happened, but so we don't repeat the worst of it. Those who cannot remember history are doomed to repeat it. We all know that quote, right? Now, I'm not here to tell you which side of the argument is the right one in terms of those who are protesting because they are wanting to get back to work or the medical workers who are advocating for us all to stay home to continue to mitigate the virus. In a free-thinking society, each one of us must come to that conclusion by ourselves while at the same time never becoming indifferent to the needs of our neighbors. Self-evident principles in accordance with liberty never make life disposable. Never. It just isn't there. The power struggle of history has always seemed to be on the issue of who we pay homage to. Who do we give our allegiance to? King and country? Or God in principle? Because at some point, these clash, and it's evidenced in history. Take, for instance, one of the other present-day issues that has occupied humanity, especially in the last 20 years, climate change. With predictions of extreme weather patterns, rising sea levels, extreme heat and extreme cold, the melting of the ice caps, death tolls that would even threaten the survival of our species. And here comes COVID-19. And with this virus, it would seem that society would break away from the discussion of the climate, but not really. In fact, article after article has been written to show that because of the quarantine, pollution levels have gone down in various metropolitan centers. It's the cleanest air we've seen in years in areas like L.A. and San Francisco, for instance. For many, this is somehow nature's response to humanity's ecological Sins, And just as, as an aside, it's curious that religious ideas and terms like the word sin would be appropriated by many of the climate proponents to somehow strengthen their arguments, since many are not necessarily religious themselves. Anyway, 
The point being is that in the last few weeks, I've noticed a pattern emerge among our global political leadership, as well as within the activist realm of climate proponents. A recent article posted by the New Boston Post entitled, If History Rhymes, is one of many that caught my attention. And it's more than just an eyebrow razor. It's quite stunning within this context that we're talking about today. And I've posted the link on today's episode so that you can read it for yourself. But we're going to read it here together. So again, this is from the New Boston Post. And the um, title of the article is If History Rhymes. This is dated April 1. So just a few weeks ago, here's the article. Within weeks, the coronavirus shutdown will draw to its inevitable conclusion. Life will settle into a new normal. In the long run, very likely our lives will change modestly. Perhaps we'll maintain a modified social distance, becoming more like the Victorians and less like modern huggers. Maybe we'll shake hands less frequently, even in church pews where Catholics may avoid the post-Vatican II sign of peace and recapture a traditional sense of stoic piety. It's possible that we'll think the better of blowing a few hundred bucks on some concert or sporting event that traps us in an enclosed box for several hours amidst the screams and spittle of rabid fans. One can only hope. At least one societal change resulting from the quarantine could do wonders to reinvigorate our national sense of family, faith, and community. Let's give serious thought to reinstating at least some of the time-honored Sunday closure laws. Sort of a one-day-per-week modified stay-at-home request. Such action would rededicate our society to a regular day of rest, family meals, civic associations, and religious observance. Now, here is where I stopped because I'm like, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. My antennas went up immediately. Again, let's go back to what they just said. Let's give serious thought to reinstating at least some of the time-honored Sunday closure laws. And the word here is laws. Now, there have been blue laws that are in the books, actually, that have been enacted in this country. And, again, it goes without mentioning, because we just talked about it in our last segment, about Rome instituting Sunday as a civil, as a civic law. And here we have an April 1, 2020 article suggesting that we go back to that. Curious. Moving on, uh, reading the rest of the article. By rededicating each Sunday as a, quote, common day of rest, unquote, we would say that the life of America is much more than never pausing commerce and ever grinding bureaucracy. We would proclaim that the heart of the nation transcends consumerism and looms larger than even the biggest government. We would emphasize that the real value in a country comes not from its uh, GMP or tax collections, but from families, faith, communities, that it comes from we the people. Now, just from a point of view of principle, would you agree with that statement? I would. Certainly, we the people are more important than GMP or tax collections, right? Because it is about we the people. 
All right, moving moving on. Many obvious benefits to faith, family, and community are certain to accrue from Sunday closings. Less obvious will be an economic uplift from the mom-and-pop brick-and-mortar shops that traditionally were permitted to open on Sundays, long before being squashed by malls, warehouse stores, and supermarkets, which dominate seven-day commerce. Additionally, locally owned restaurants regularly served neighborhoods in the Blue Law era, further encouraging small businesses. Again, let's, let, let's read that again. Additionally, locally owned restaurants regularly served neighborhoods in the Blue Law era, further encouraging small businesses. For old school sports fans, Sundays at rest may encourage a relaxed weekly afternoon watching or listening to nine innings of baseball, reinvigorating our once dominant national pastime. Of course, there will be plenty of entrenched opposition to a renewed Sunday for rest, reflection, family, faith, and community. Libertarians and classical liaison economists oppose any such restrictions on commerce, blissfully unaware that most states protected the Lord's Day from big business encroachment for nearly two centuries while encouraging free enterprise on the six other days. Now, here's the thing. They are connecting Sunday with its obvious religious implications that it is the Lord's Day. So they're not taking Sunday out of its religious context because that's where Sunday comes from. Okay, so the intent here, I think, is pretty obvious. Once again, it says, Libertarians and classical liaison fair economists oppose any such restrictions on commerce, blissfully unaware that most states protected the Lord's Day from big business encroachment for nearly two centuries. And it's true. You can look back at history. Uh, moving on. More opposition to a restoration of Sundays will emanate from secular leftists who on most issues vehemently denounce greedy billionaire capitalists. But on this matter, their fear that more Americans will, quote, keep holy the Lord's Day, unquote, far outweighs their fear of unbridled capitalism. Better, many secularists suppose, that people go to the supermarkets and malls than to prayer services. Better still, that Americans become addicted to consumerism than fall for the opiate of the masses, quote, unquote. Better they conclude an undifferentiated mass of Sunday consumers than masses and services filled with Sunday worshipers. Finally, politicians and bureaucrats will fight to preserve the shopping, the shopping status quo. After all, unending consumer activity churns out enormous sales tax and income tax revenue for politicians and bureaucrats to spend. Any threat to that revenue... Uh, Sorry, any threat to that revenue stream will stimulate fierce political opposition. A wise man once said, there is no going back in history. That's perhaps the truest of all truisms. But whoever imagined that commerce and bureaucracy would grind to a halt for so many days and weeks and perhaps months as a result of a deadly virus? There's no one alive who concretely remembers the flu epidemic of a century ago. Every breathing baby boomer easily recalls limitations to commercial activity on Sundays. One might suggest that with today's coronavirus, we are, in a tragic and certain sense, reliving 
are going back in history. Another venerable aphorism often misattributed to Mark Twain says, quote, History doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes, unquote. We are witnesses to history rhyming through a medical contagion and many days of quarantine. After that quarantine passes, why cannot we also envision higher priorities for 52 Sundays of family dinners, neighborhood gatherings, and church bell chimes? Yes, that could be the sweetest sound if history rhymes. A fascinating article to be sure. A lot of different implications here. But going back into history and wanting to bring back a legislation of a day, of a religious day, so that we can reap the benefits. I mean, right now, most of us are at home with our families. We're having more family meals around the table, right? More time to play with our kids. So, have there been benefits from this? Of course. But can we legislate morality? Because history right now, at least from what we've seen, has shown us that when you do that, the result is tyranny. Now, as I was researching this and reading on this, which I found fascinating, I thought, okay, well, that's just one source. Are there others who are also talking about this very subject? What do we do when this thing ends or calms down once the quarantine passes? What's the new normal? Do we go back to what we knew? Or should we look at history and bring back the things that might make us look more at our humanity? After all, what's wrong with that, right? The greater good, in other words. So, as I was searching around, I found some other articles and some other sources asking for the same thing. Thinking about, imagining the new world after quarantine. So, here I'm going to share with you some of these other articles. Now, maybe some of you have seen these other articles, but I'm just going to bring them up here within this context. So, this is CNN from Rome on the 8th of April, 2020. Pope Francis has said, The coronavirus pandemic is one of nature's responses to humans ignoring the current ecological crisis. In an email interview published Wednesday in the Tablet and Commonwealth magazines, the pontiff said the outbreak offered an opportunity to slow down the rate of production and consumption and to learn to understand and contemplate the natural world. Quote, we did not respond to the partial catastrophes. Who now speaks of the fires in Australia? Or remembers that 18 months ago a boat could cross the North Pole because the glaciers had all melted. Who speaks now of the floods? The Pope said. And he continued and said, I don't know if these are the revenge of nature, but they are certainly nature's responses, he added. The pandemic has radically changed the way the Vatican operates, with the Pope celebrating Palm Sunday Mass in an empty church, and the sites normally packed with tourists, now empty. Okay, that's one response. Now, here's another that comes from The Guardian. Now, because the question came, okay, is this something recent in the context of the conversation of climate change? Well, no. If you go back to 2009, 
in uh, The Guardian. This is September 17, 2009, in an article in, uh, entitled Slow Sunday, The Simple Solution to Global Warming. Okay, again, this is now more than 10 years ago, but still fascinating. So uh, here's some of uh, what was in the article. We cannot wait until governments are enlightened enough to legislate and cap the carbon emissions. Matters are urgent. We have to act now without any delay. The power of public opinion and citizen action will have a strong impact on the climate conference taking place in Copenhagen. One thing we can easily do to achieve this goal, we can declare Sunday to be a fossil fuel free day or a low carbon day or at least an energy saving day. We can start this week, this month, or in 2010. We can start individually and collectively. The long journey to cut carbon dioxide emissions can start in the here and now. Not long ago, Sunday used to be a day of rest, a day of spiritual renewal, a day for families to come together. But we have changed Sunday from a day of rest to a day of shopping flying and driving. However, in the context of excessive carbon dioxide emissions into the atmosphere, which are bringing catastrophic upheavals, we can and should restore Sunday to a day for Gaia, or what is a day for the earth. We can enjoy Sunday once more with our family and friends. We can engage in gardening, writing, painting, walking, baking bread, or simply spending time in contemplation. This will be good, for our personal health, as well as for the health of the planet. Okay. Interesting, right? That was 10 years ago. Now, here we have um, another uh, article comes from the Pea Ridge Times. It's dated April 15, 2020. All right. So, uh, here's a, a, a portion of the article. Sporting events have been canceled. Entertainment venues are closed. Restaurants are closed. Now, people are wondering about graduations, kindergarten, high school, college graduations, which usually draw large family gatherings. Recently, I drove through the parking lot of the mall in, in Rogers. It was virtually empty. The first thought that crossed my mind uh, was, it must be Sunday. And then I realized I had basically gone back in time mentally more than 50 years. When I was young, growing up in the Deep South, stores and businesses closed at 5 or 6 p.m. and were not open on Sundays. In fact, after church and Sunday lunch at the country club, Granddaddy would drive us around to window shop. Nowadays, with stores open seven days a week, there is no window shopping. Except for now, with the quarantine, stores are again closed. Years ago, Sunday was a different day than the other six days of the week. Church parking lots were full. Store parking lots were empty and stores were closed. Occasionally, a gasoline station, we called them filling stations, was open. But it was the exception instead of the rule. Even people who didn't go to church used Sunday for a day of rest and relaxation. Today, Sunday is not much different than the work week except many stores don't open until noon. Maybe this time of enforced isolation will teach us something. Maybe we'll find ways to create time within our overpacked, busy, demanding schedules for recreation, relaxation, relationships for family and for friends. Maybe we'll come out on the other side wiser. Interesting, isn't it? And are those things bad? No. And certainly for me, 
This time of quarantine has been a time for reflection, for meditation, for prayer, for time to refocus. Those are all good things. But again, should my belief, right? Because I also keep, I keep my Sabbath. My, our family keeps the seventh day Sabbath. We do because it's what we have believed and what is true from the original document. But should my belief in what is true, should that be uh, encroached and forced upon you just because I believe it's the right thing to do? Should your belief in whatever you deem sacred in your, in your own life as an individual or your family or your home, should that be forced upon me because it's good for the community? Just because it's good for your household? See, this is where it becomes a problem. Here's uh, another um, article, Tablet Magazine, February 3, 2020. We humans face a set of dire ecological crisis. The results of what many now call the anthro, uh, anthro, Anthropocene era the era of human modification of Earth's planetary systems. These crises, global warming, altered weather, species extinction, the threats of various kinds of toxic pollution, the proliferation of garbage, soil erosion, desertification, declining fresh water supplies, and so on, constitute not only an absolutely real eminent threat to the future well-being of humankind, but also it sometimes seems a modern manifestation of the various litanies of biblical curses. The multiplicitous nature of the crisis demands multiple solutions, political, economic, technological, psychological, ethical, behavioral, and even spiritual. Now, they don't mention religious, but the spiritual implies that. Going on in the same article from the tablet, equally needed is a holistic understanding of how we got to this calamitous situation and how we avoid it in the future. Given their continued widespread influence, biblical religion and its offshoots offer one particularly compelling and promising solution, the Sabbath day of rest. A weekly ritual, both symbolic and with real-world impacts, widespread observance of Sabbath done right could reduce environmental harm by about one-seventh in much of the world and provide a platform for ongoing meditating on our environmental sins and their consequences. So, again, this idea of Sabbath, a rest one day a week, and again, they don't use the word legislation, but it's implied as a collective, as, as the world. Why? As a global Sabbath. Why? Because it's for the greater good, for the salvation of the species. And there's even more, I wanna, and I want to share this with you, coming from a source that will recognize the Roman Catholic Church, the Pope, the very system that we just talked about in history that legislated this Sabbath Sunday rest. So enter one, the Catholic climate movement. Okay, and this is a legitimate movement. And again, um, these links for these sources will be on today's podcast page. So look for them and do your own homework. Research this for yourself. Read it for yourself. The Catholic Climate Movement is a global network of over 650-plus Catholic organizations, including the Jesuits, the Knights of Columbus, and many others. They have organized for one purpose, 
to implement Pope Francis Laudato Si' encyclical, which calls through stealth for Sunday to be the law of weekly rest in order to save the environment. The Catholic climate movement is using its vast network and membership to lobby political leaders by urging them to adopt Laudato Si. Again, Laudato Si is a written encyclical by Pope Francis. They, which is the Catholic climate movement, are also busy training Catholic lay people to become Laudato Si animators. That's what they call it. These Laudato Si animators receive special training to become champions for raising awareness to the Pope's message on climate change in our society. In addition to holding seminars, rallies, marches, and other Laudato Si events, the Catholic climate movement is using its influence to boycott businesses and organizations who are not following the Pope's message on climate change. So we go to the source. The Laudato Si Encyclical. All right, and it's paragraph 237. And these are numbered, and I'm going to also post the PDF of this document. Okay, so you can read it for yourself. It's a lengthy document, but one that I think we all need to pay attention to, especially in the context of the global pandemic and now what's being called for by many in society, including Pope Francis himself. So, again, paragraph 237 in his encyclical. On Sunday, our participation in the Eucharist has special importance. Sunday, like the Jewish Sabbath, is meant to be a day which heals our relationships with God, with ourselves, with others, and with the world. Sunday is the day of the resurrection, the first day of the new creation, whose first fruits are the Lord's risen humanity, the pledge of the final transfiguration of all created reality. It also proclaims man's eternal rest in God. In this way, Christian spirituality incorporates the value of relaxation and festivity. We tend to demean contemplative rest as something unproductive and unnecessary, but this is to do away with the very thing which is most important about work, its meaning. We are called to include in our work a dimension of receptivity and gratuity, which is quite different from mere inactivity. Rather, it is another way of working which forms part of our very essence. It protects human action from becoming empty activism. It also prevents that unfettered greed and sense of isolation which make us seek personal gain to the detriment of all else. The law of weekly rest forbade work on the seventh day, so that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your maidservant and the stranger may be refreshed. Again, he's quoting Exodus um, 23, verse 12. Rest opens our eyes to the larger picture and gives us renewed sensitivity to the rights of others. And so, the day of rest, centered on the Eucharist, sheds its light on the whole week and motivates us to greater concern for nature and the poor. And this is all within the context of talking about the problem of climate change and how we survive in the future. And there's more to this. But again, Sunday and all of these sources is of great importance. And why that day? Why not any other day? They're, they're, they're specifically choosing Sunday. And so it, for me, it's just curious because it's happened in history before. So what do we expect now? Again, all of these sources can be found on today's episode page. So if you go to truthreel.transistor.fm, 
You'll see the links posted there, and uh, you'll be able to do your own research. And I've put them there for, for one reason, because you have to do your own homework. I'm not a voice speaking here to convince you of anything, save to question with boldness. And we are now at a historic crossroads, and that cannot be denied. And it is because of that that we must be more vigilant and more awake than we ever have been before. Once again, history is replete with story after story showing the attempts of political or religious power to conquer or rule in some attempt to unify the whole world, perhaps bring peace through a dominant force, and today, through legislation for the common good, bring another shift in power that will perhaps, maybe, save the planet? But will it? Again, no other worldview that we have looked at in this search has ever given us a solution to our mortality. It doesn't save us from our current reality of suffering, oppression, hate, and death. Save our planet? The only one who offers a new world, one, one that is recreated, one without the problem of suffering and death, is Jesus alone. We can argue all we want about solutions, but any solution that does not solve the problem of human depravity and suffering is no solution at all. If tyranny is ever suggested, whether soft or direct, for the sake of our security and the sake of the global common good, then it must always do it based in the moral fabric of individual worth and individual liberty. If that is lost, there is no solution that will ever save us collectively. My hope is in the promise Jesus gives to all of us, that he is coming soon. That is the hope for us all. <laughs> 